0: Sebastian Bach. The man lived in the wave of the Protestant Reformation. He lived in the shadow of Martin Luther himself. Though he was born over a century after Luther, Bach actually grew up in the same town in Germany that Luther grew up in. He went to the same school Luther went to. Uh, Bach owed his spiritual passion to the ministry of the Lutheran church that he was raised in. And Bach was the greatest musician in the world. At least many still feel that way. His ability on the piano and the organ and with voice and song composition. Bach, when it comes to music, was just the best, a rock star. And yet, he was a simple church musician, a worship leader. And as a worship leader at a little church, he was invited to come to this place. My friends, this is the palace of the king of Prussia, Frederick the Great. He had heard of Bach and his unbelievable musical abilities. Can you imagine getting invited to the king's palace? I mean, this is the equivalent of the White House or the Oval Office invitation. If there's anything that's a heady experience causing someone to get proud, it would be this. But Bach was not proud at all. Didn't get to him. He wasn't impressed with people. He was impressed with God. Bach loved the Lord and the battle to be proud had already been waged in his life. It was back when he was a young man, 32 years old, struggling to make ends meet. He was, uh, had a family of eight children at 32. Can you imagine that? And he was making peanuts working for the church when a really rich guy offered him double his salary to leave ministry and come into secular music making. He did it for a short time and grew convicted and returned back to the church. He said, I don't care how much I make. He believed that the highest, the highest calling of music was to glorify God and that was his obsession to use music to bring glory to God. In fact, Bach was so passionate about this that on on every song he wrote, on the music, he'd write his name at the bottom. And next to his name, he'd write SDG. SDG. Every time. It stands for Solo Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. I was at... uh, Frontier Park, actually, right by the 95th Street campus, all of you. I was watching my son's soccer game, and uh, as I did, standing there on the sidelines, I looked down, and another dad, who I did not recognize, but he obviously recognized me, his face lit up, and he started waving at me. Uh, this happens. You know, we're, we're a larger church, and I run into folks uh, out and about town. I actually love running into them. It provides a great opportunity to get to know people. So I walked down the sidelines and shook his hand and asked him his name and then said, so tell me which campus are you a part of? And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. And I said, well, you go to the the Compass Church, right? And he goes, I've never heard of the Compass Church. (laughs) I go, well, then how do we know each other? He said, I- I'm sorry, sir, I've never seen you before. <laughs> I'm like, you did wave to me, right? He goes, oh, oh, no, no, I was waving to my friend behind you. <laughs> and he said, oh, it was nice to meet you, though. <laughs> i God, like, oh, nice. I felt like a fool, but more than that, this little incident caused me to look inside of me and just, I, I saw it as a bit of a, Revelation of my own arrogance. You know, what kind of a guy thinks that everybody who's waving is waving at them? (laughs) What kind of a guy thinks the world is all about them? I'm growing in my battle with pride and self-obsession, but it's not gone yet. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you too have a tendency to get too obsessed and to think it's all about you. Well, this particular message is going to be of great import in my life and maybe in yours because it says that it's not all about us. Our lives should not be focused on us. Our lives should be focused on God. He should be our obsession, not self-obsession. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone was this battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. We are a people who are living for the glory of God. Of God. Now, we're going to study a passage that may make you feel better at first. It's, it's arrogance at an extreme level. And you'll say, well, compared to that guy, I'm pretty, pretty humble. Maybe so. The guy we're going to look at, his name is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Greatest man in the world, uh, power-wise, wealth-wise at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, ruled this empire back around 600 B.C., And the passage we're going to be reading from is in the book of Daniel. If you want to look in the Bible in the chair back, you'll find it on page 886. Daniel 4, verse 29. It says this about this man. As Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built As the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Are you smelling a little arrogance in that statement? Huh? Wow. Folks, Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof. He's just looking out. He's talking to himself here. And he says, Is this not the great Babylon? First of all, is Babylon great? Folks, uh, Babylon, talk about a great city. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who built this city. That's uh, The ruins of Babylon are in ancient Iraq. And yes, it was one of the greatest cities in world history. I had the privilege of walking through the gates into the city of, of Babylon. And you say, you went to Iraq? No, I didn't go to Iraq. I went to Berlin, Germany. Berlin, in fact, that... Uh, palace that you saw me in at the video is right outside of Berlin. Well, we went into Berlin and in the museum, they have transferred the Ishtar Gate from Iraq, brick by brick, all the way to Berlin and reassembled this gate that Nebuchadnezzar built. Here's a video of of, uh, us walking through this incredible recreation of this gate. These bricks are glazed bricks with color uh, infused into them. Lions and uh, dragons and uh, bulls. It's monumentous. I felt like I was in a time machine, like I was meeting Nebuchadnezzar, going back uh, all these years and seeing the at least a piece of the grandeur of this incredible city. In fact, the Ishtar Gates and the walls surrounding Babylon were one of the wonders of the world. Have you heard of the seven wonders of the world? Well, the Ishtar Gate was one of the original seven wonders of the world. Babylon was so amazing that two of the seven wonders were centered on this city Nebuchadnezzar built. The second of the seven that was around Babylon were called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The Hanging Gardens were a man-made mountain, where Babylon is, is very flat. And Nebuchadnezzar's wife grew, from, grew up in a mountainous area, and she longed for a mountain. So he said, hey, darling, I'll build you a mountain. And this man-made mountain was a multi terraced uh man-made structure. Each terrace was a garden. Each garden had exotic plants, and it was so monumentous that as you looked at the Ishtar gates from outside the city, you would see this man-made mountain, the hanging gardens of Babylon, towering above the wall. The city was like no other in the world. And so we begin to understand a little bit of the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I have built it. Well, he didn't lift a brick, but Yes, it was his command that led to the construction of this city. And he wanted it known that he had built it so badly that he had stamped into the bricks his name and title. Proof of, of his own arrogance is at my alma mater, Wheaton College, not far from here. Here's a, here's a brick that Wheaton has in its archaeology department that's one of Nebuchadnezzar's bricks. It's stamped here is his name and title. And so we have evidence of this biblical insistence on him saying, I built it for me. Uh, next slide. We, we see here, he says, by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. I want to confess this is extreme arrogance. But before you roll your eyes at Nebuchadnezzar, let me argue there's a little Nebuchadnezzar in you and in me. This is kind of just a fuller expression of the same problem we've got, that self-obsession that's there. Uh, in fact, we've been called the narcissistic generation. Some have said that there is more self-obsession today than at any point in world history. And so let's lean into that. Let me press into your heart. You ready? Well, engage with me, all of you at 95th, all of you at the Brook campus here at Hobson. Why do you get out of bed every day? Is it for self? Why do you live? Is it for you? You know, for many people, the purpose of their life is to increase comfort and happiness. It's all about me. Why do you work? Well, let's start there. Why do you work? I work to make money so that I can increase my lifestyle and be more comfortable and happy. Or maybe you work so that you can succeed and impress people with what a great person you are because it makes you feel better about yourself. Or why do you do your hobbies and recreation because it makes me happy or feel better? Or why do you emphasize personal health, you know, diet and exercise so that I look better and people think I'm more beautiful or more handsome so I feel better about myself? Why did you start a family if you started a family? Yes, we want to bless our kids, but for so many of us, we'd say, oh, I thought I'd be happier with a family. And why did you work hard to raise a great family? For many, part of the reason is because great families make us look better and feel better about ourselves. There is so much self driving us. And the fifth sola says it's not supposed to be that way. We are not supposed to be a people who are self-obsessed, but God-centered. Glory to God alone should be our reason for living. We should be living for him. And we're not. And neither was Nebuchadnezzar. He was all about himself. Well, he's on the roof. He's saying these very self-centered things. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You, is a Prophecy of the near future, you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox. There's actually, uh, uh, psychologists talk about a disease called lycanthropy. It's a condition of uh, mental illness where the sufferer uh, has delusions of them being an animal and they act like an animal. I mean, this is a real thing, it's documented and it's what Nebuchadnezzar developed. The pastor says this is what's going to happen. Verse 32 continues Seven times will pass by. In other words, you will suffer with this mental illness for seven times, which most scholars think is seven years. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and that He gives those kingdoms to anyone He wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to suffer with this mental illness until you acknowledge, what? That God is most high and sovereign over kingdoms. Another way of saying it, until you acknowledge that it's all about God and it's not all about you. You know, that's the key that he needs to realize. In fact, I'm going to say it out here, and you may be offended, but I'm okay with that. It's not about you. It's about God. Your life should not be about you. It should be all about him. Nebuchadnezzar needed to realize that God was the one who was king of kings, and all the kingdoms that are assigned to earthly rulers are done at his command. Nebuchadnezzar should have been grateful to God for what he had, rather than puffing out his chest thinking that he's all that. Folks, the realization that it's not about us is one of the most important discoveries for us to understand and live out. I was trying to live it out uh, just Friday. On Friday, we were, the day after Thanksgiving, we're still hanging out with extended family. My brother, Mark, who lives in California, was in with his wife and four sons. They are disgustingly physically fit. All of them are just totally into fitness. And my brother said something that I found very offensive. He, he was, uh, we were planning on Friday to go see a movie, Justice League, and I was all excited about it. And my brother says, you know, it's such a beautiful day, how about we scrap our plans to see a movie, and how about we take a five-mile hike around a part of Lake Geneva up in Wisconsin. And you know, inside of me, I'm going, no! And well, discussion ensued, and it was agreed upon that we would hike for five miles instead of watching a movie. And folks, it was just, it was a personal victory for me. The, the, the thing I kept hearing in my mind was, it's not about you, Jeff. It's not about you. It's not about you. When we think it's about us, anything that threatens our pursuit of maximal happiness, we find, we bristle at it. And my old self would have bristled, and I would have, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, go hike five miles, and I would have had a little bit of a fit. But I said, it's not about me. It's not about me. This day is not about me. It's about you, Lord, and what you want. What do you want, Lord? And the sense was that the right thing to do was to hike five miles. We had fun. I am sore, but we had fun, and it, it it was the right move. And I I just saw the practical value of this understanding that it's not about me. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn. And so God has said, you're going to have this disease. And sure enough, it happened. Verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He did. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived outside. He fought his way out of the palace and the guards couldn't or wouldn't restrain him and he took off into the woods. And for seven years, the rain drenched him as it fell on him. This Hair grew like feathers. You know, in seven years, his hair grew long. And those feather references probably dreadlocks. You know, if hair is left unkept, it begins to clump together. And these matted down clumps of hair look like feathers. And talk about ungroomed. His nails became like the claws of a bird. For seven years, he didn't cut his fingernails. And they became grotesquely long. I mean, the irony of what happens to the most powerful man in the world, the most glorified and honored and celebrated human being has become subhuman. Wow. What is God saying to Nebuchadnezzar? and What is God saying to us in this biblically recorded event? Well, it's bad, but then after seven years, the disease ends. Look at verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Not only his sanity, but he, his kingdom. He was brought back into the palace and restored to the throne again. And then I love verse 37 that kind of sums up this section with firm declaration. Nebuchadnezzar says this. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Uh, what a statement. Nebuchadnezzar is formally declaring that the orientation of my entire life has shifted. He says, I told you, I was all about me. I walked around the palace just being amazed at how great I was. No more. He says, now I exalt, I praise, exalt, and I glorify the king of heaven. Isn't that great? 2,000 years before the Protestant Reformation, Nebuchadnezzar was in touch with one of the five solas. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Glorify the king of heaven. He said, that's how I and why I now live. The reason I get out of bed every day has changed. It's not living for me. It's living for him. Why, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he tells us why. Because... Everything God does is right, and, what, and all his ways are just. Isn't that interesting? I live for God because of what God has done. Nebuchadnezzar says, I see the beauty of God's actions, and I have concluded the Lord deserves my life. If that was true for Nebuchadnezzar back then who knew nothing of the cross of Christ, how much more true is that for us? That one of the reasons we should live for the Lord is because of what he's done. I mean, I I still am mesmerized by what he's done. Think about it. God looked down at a planet of wickedly rebellious, personally insulting people. And God says, I still love him. And God said, I'm gonna go visit their planet and I'm gonna become one of them. I'll put on flesh and become a human being. I will transfer the sin and guilt of the whole world onto my shoulders and I will willingly die on behalf of the rebels so that justice is served and a way of reconciliation and forgiveness is made available to humanity. When you understand what Jesus has done for us, The only appropriate response is, I will live for you. I I quoted this last week. I'll quote it again. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And that's our response. Lord, because of what you've done, I've concluded that a self-obsessed life is just inappropriate. You deserve my life. Soli Deo Gloria, I will live for the glory of God. Now, if that's not enough, Nebuchadnezzar gives a second reason. He says, because God deserves its reason number one, and those who walk in pride, boy, is he able to humble. One of the biblical themes is God opposes the proud. It's throughout scripture and it's evident here where God says, listen, a self-obsessed life is so ugly God says, so inappropriate. God says, I'll deal with it. And he dealt with it in the case of Nebuchadnezzar in extreme measure, and he will in our life too. And so I don't care which of your reasons is the reason for you changing the focus of your life. I'll celebrate any reason. Maybe your reason is you recognize he deserves my life. He died for me. He gave me eternity, and I didn't deserve it. Or maybe your reason is I know God humbles the proud, and I don't want to get caught up in being disciplined by him. Maybe maybe the best route is letting both of those reasons speak into our decision to say, my whole life from now on is to glorify God. In fact, I love how Paul says it in the New Testament. Such a simple and yet profound statement. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, Paul says, do it all for the glory of God. Isn't that a great motto to live by? Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Maybe that confuses you and you say, well, I I understand church stuff. I mean, when I come to church, that's for God. I'm singing songs to glorify God. I'm, I'm serving at church to do it for God. But how can every day, all day be for the glory of God? That doesn't even make sense. Oh, it does. There is a way that 24-7, every moment of every day can be lived for the glory of God. Let me provide you a little slide that might help you expand your understanding of how we can live for the glory of God. Here we go. Five ways. We can work for the glory of God and enjoy for the glory of God and love, obey, and suffer for the glory of God. Let's go through this. Work. You know, a big part of our lives for most is work. Work. It says in Colossians 3, work with all your heart as for the Lord. We can dedicate our labor on the job to God. We can say, and God wants us to say, Lord, I'm going to work really hard today, not for my employer, but for you. I'm going to pause before this day and say, SDG, soli deo gloria, this day, God is working for you. And our work becomes worship. And when we pour our heart into our job, doing our very best, it brings a smile to the face of God. He receives that excellence as devotion to him. I'll I'll add a little thing to that. If you're a tither, as God instructs us to be, tithing is giving 10% of our hard-earned income to the Lord and his cause, uh, here, near, and far, we tithers have this added uh, sense of connection to God where we say, you know, my income, my, I want to maximize my income so that I can be able to give more to see that money translated into lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And work suddenly is all about God. We're like, man, let's go at this for God, earning money for him. Yes, work can be for the glory of God. How about enjoy? Enjoyment of The good things in life can be for the glory of God. We actually studied this back in our series earlier this fall. Remember, it was called The Beautiful One, where God's beautiful and the world he made is beautiful. And anytime we enjoy his beautiful world, giving him thanks, it's really worship to God. Uh, It says in 1 Timothy 4.3, food is to be enjoyed with thanks given to God. Here. Here. On Thanksgiving, Thursday, I did this. I ate pecan pie to the glory of God. (laughs) You chuckle, but it's true. I, I paused and I looked at this magnificent slice of pecan pie. My mom had a big part in making it, but she worked with the Lord. You know, the Lord's the creator of the pecan. And the Lord's the creator of sugar and the flour that goes into that crust. And yes, I may have put a scoop of ice cream on top of that pecan pie. And I I just paused and I just said, Lord, thank you for that. Even before I take a bite. And when I take a bite, I, I, Lord, thank you. Oh, I enjoyed and praised the giver of all good gifts in the middle. So, Even your hobby and those things you enjoy can be done for the glory of God. If you recognize God as the giver of all good gifts, if you recognize his beauty found in this beautiful thing and give thanks to him, it can be done for the glory of God. How about love, loving other people for the glory of God? I love this uh, parable in Matthew 25 where Jesus says that when you do it for them, you did it for me. He says everything you did to bless, in this case, the least of these, Jesus says, I receive it as blessing to me. When we love people, Jesus receives it personally as if you're loving him. It's glorifying him. And so do you intentionally choose to love on people as a way to glorify God? Let's get real specific. Did you this Thanksgiving, I'm thinking of you at Bolingbroke. Did you this Thanksgiving, did you pause and look around the room full of family? And did you say, who could I intentionally start a conversation with and really love on them, encourage them, bless them? Some of you would say, and that thought never crossed my mind. I was laying on the couch all day and never thought of how I could love others. Well, you missed a key opportunity to glorify God through the loving of people. How about obey? I'm reminded of 1 Samuel 5.22 that says the Lord delights in our Obedience. God finds joy when we choose to obey him. I think this obey for the glory of God can be used to transform a lot of our activity. Same activity we may continue with, but now do it for a different reason. For example, exercise and and diet. If you're striving to get healthy, spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, why am I doing this? Am I doing this so that I look better? Or Lord, here's another question do you want me to steward the one body you've given me, to manage the one body you've given me in a good way? God, would it be your desire that I get on the treadmill? And if you sense that, yeah, this is in fact what God wants me to do, say, well, you know what? I'm not doing it so I look hot. I'm doing it for you. Get on the treadmill this time saying, Lord, receive this. I'm obeying what I believe you want me to do. All of the lifestyle changes, whether it be money or food or substance, and we say, you know, God's calling me to make a change. Make a change for him. So it's a far better and more inspiring and beautiful reason to do these things. It's because I know what God wants me to do, and I want to obey him because my obedience delights the heart of God. One more, and this is a tough one. Your suffering can be for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul suffered much and he said in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I delight in hardship for the sake of Christ. Paul recognized that in hardship, he's like, man, I think the Lord's calling me to walk this difficult path. Then you better help me, God. And he relied on God's strength and God showed up and God gave Paul the strength to endure and it was a beautiful thing. God received it as worship. Every time we face hardship, We can dedicate it to God and say, Lord, all right, I'll walk this path of suffering and I'll do it for you. I'll cling to your strength. I'll tell people you're the only reason I'm making it. And suffering can be infused with meaning as we walk that path for the glory of God. Here, I I make this challenge to you. Tomorrow. Go through your day asking this question. How can every moment be lived for the glory of God? As you step into different moments throughout your day, say, okay, how can this be done for the glory of God? And and think of these things. Is it at work? Or is it enjoying something good that God made? Or is it a chance to relate to people in a loving way? Is it a matter of obedience or suffering? Folks, but if you're attentive to it, every single moment of every day can be lived For the glory of God. And those who choose to live this way find their obsession, going away from self-obsession to God-centeredness. And that shift, that whole new reason for living is huge and beautiful and right. We should live. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. I want to go back to what Nebuchadnezzar said. Can we go to verse 37 again? Now I, I love the formality here. In fact, you'll notice we used a font, a handwritten font. It's like Nebuchadnezzar signing his name. He could have just said, I glorify the king of heaven, but he he says, no, now, y'all listening? Hear me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, I now live to glorify the king of heaven. This name signed to this vow, this mission, reminds me of Johann Sebastian Bach. Here's a picture of Bach's signature on the bottom of his piece of music, an SDG. That's what he did every time. He said, this piece that I've just done, this work I've just done, is for God. Soli Deo Gloria. And he signed his name. And every time, there was a moment of finality, mission statement, name signed. Mission statement, name signed. If these guys felt the need to do it, maybe it would be good for us to do too. So I extend a little challenge to you right now. At 95th Street at Bolingbroke or at Hobson, you've got the navigator, which on the back has a section for taking notes. I challenge you, even now, grab that pen. And don't do this because I said so. Do this because you mean it. If you desire to live for the glory of God, write your name, sign your name, and write Soli Deo Gloria or just SDG. Do what these guys did and say, Lord, you're looking at what I'm doing. Lord, you know, I've been living this way or trying to live this way for a long time, or I'm going to start this day turning the whole reason for my existence to being to live for you. Would you do it even now? Let's pray. God, how disgusting my, our self-obsession must look. And God, we're sorry. We're, We're totally focused sometimes on the wrong thing. By the grace of Christ, would you forgive us of our pride, our arrogance, our narcissistic tendencies. And God, would you teach us how to live for you? You died for us, we'll live for you. Please, God, help us to learn that life is to be all about you. Jesus, we want to live for the one who died for us. Remind us, even as we sing in worship, remind us that it's all about you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.